So this is kind of a Chief O'Brien heavy week. It is, and it's been good to see him back on this show. Um, I still can't necessarily I, – I am surprised that he is the character that they brought over. Um, why? Why? Well, why maybe not. That? Maybe not. You're right, because it's not like he was a main character there and – you know, they yeah. wanted to bring him back more. You know, all right, that's fine. Um, I like Chief O'Brien. I think we need to talk about Chief O'Brien. How are you feeling about Chief O'Brien? He's fine. I like Chief O'Brien. He's the new Jordy. He's learning his way. He's uh, he's making his way through the world. Keiko is, you know, teaching away. And, yeah, I don't, know. I don't have that much to say about him. He's the same old Chief O'Brien we love. Is he, though? I don't know about that, because I think that the show is sort of changing his character a little bit and sort of saying, okay, he is this sort of engineering genius, and I don't really know that there was much evidence of that in The Next Generation. Now, of course, that could be because he was just stuck inside of a transporter room all the time. Yeah, I mean, I I guess um, he feels, he definitely does feel more fleshed out, and, you know, definitely that wasn't an aspect of his character, but it also wasn't, um, it's not like... You know, even what we've seen of him, we know that he probably has a fairly strong technical knowledge, you know, given his job. Um, We could even say that, you know, as preparation for this promotion, he learned a lot more stuff. You know, we haven't seen what he's been doing in, you know, in his day to day for the past couple seasons of TNG. So, you know, maybe he has been learning more. And also, this is not exactly when, when he was originally given the posting. I don't exactly see this as a prestige position, you know, so. You know, maybe he is a little lower level, and that's why he got this particular position, and he's just kind of rising to the challenge. I mean, if if we have seen one – can say one thing about, you know, TNG characters is that they do have the ability to – if they're not quite at a level they need to be, they get there really quickly when, when, when necessity arises. Yeah, I guess that's true. I think, you know, Chief O'Brien's an interesting character for me, and I think, you know, we'll talk about him a lot more uh, uh, in, in Captive Pursuit, but mm-hmm. – because Babel really isn't a Chief O'Brien. Yeah, episode. yeah. He it's, just, it's, but it's, he just kind of is the, the, the impetus for what's going on. It's really that I think I, I'm kind of of two minds about the Chief O'Brien character in DS9. Because I think that, number one, he was you know he was only a guest star in, in TNG. So sort of like he's not underwritten. He just was. We don't provide it with a lot of information about Chief O'Brien. And so bringing him over makes sense. I wonder about why exactly he would take this position number one and i think that you know if you look at it in terms of and again you know it's like we talked about last week i think deep space nine is a, is a show that's a lot more difficult to talk about on an episode by episode basis because i'm already starting to bring up things about captive pursuit huh. but and these you know, were two relatively self-contained uh episodes you know they I, were I, but i but i which, think which that, is you know really funny about it you know too like even well, Again, yeah, even because, in two Monster of the Week plots, it's still very well tied to each other. They're still thinking about what is going before and after in a way. Well, yeah, because I think that that, that a lot of the character work bleeds over. I mean, we talked about this last week, but a lot of the character work in Deep Space Nine is bleeding over into, into the, each episode yeah. uh, more than ever really was the case in The Next Generation. And so I think that's why it's a little more difficult to talk about because we already sort of see some of the character stuff developing later on. But, you know... What we see in Captive Pursuit is that that Chief O'Brien sort of um, he he's able to be a little bit flexible, shall we say, about Federation rules and Starfleet rules. And so, I mean, yeah, uh, that that's all. Everything he does on that is stuff he learned on the Enterprise, you know. Yeah, but I think that that you know, I don't know that you can really say that that at least in in Babel that what he's doing is very different from what he would be doing on the Enterprise. 
I wonder if he's just kind of there to provide a little bit of a bridge for us in the beginning and then later on his character will change. You know, I don't know. uh, But I think that, that it's kind of interesting that he's able to be sort of like openly frustrated with the state of the, of the space station. He's able to be openly frustrated with his commanding officer. You know, he's able to be openly frustrated just all the time. I don't think that that would have flown on the Enterprise. And frankly, I don't think the Enterprise was the kind of environment that people were frustrated at generally. I was going to say, I almost wonder if O'Brien even feels like maybe you got to build the goods on this particular mission. You know, I, I, it, you don't know how the promotion was pitched to him. I mean, you know, he's definitely going to be thinking about, you know, his wife and kid, and maybe they, you know, exaggerated the amount of opportunities that they would have, and, you know, how wonderful it would be for their his daughter to, you know, like, maybe he didn't realize quite how crummy the condition of the ship was when he got the promotion, um, especially because we're told in the pilot that the Cardassians kind of trashed their own uh, station after a while. Sure. Um, I almost get the sense that maybe he didn't realize this was going to be quite as isolated and difficult a mission as it's turning out to be. I mean, that could be a bit of his frustration as well. His last, you know, his last posting was the Enterprise, which was very cushy. And his, you know, even though he did some more military stuff when he was younger, he was much younger then and not, you know, again, he didn't have a family. Well, yeah, and I think that it's interesting because, you know, one of the things you said there I, I, I think is very astute is that he feels isolated, and I think he does feel isolated. You know, in Babel, what you're seeing is, and of course it's kind of wacky, and oh, it's Chief O'Brien running around ragged and, you know, yeah. uh, not, not really able to do anything besides work, and everyone is demanding things of his time, and et cetera, et cetera, and he overlooks this thing, and it causes this whole disaster to happen, but... The thing about Chief O'Brien, and again, you know, information that's revealed in Captive Pursuit is that he says that only about 300 people live on the station. And I find that a very interesting number because we know that there were about 1,000 people that lived on the Enterprise. There and were, of course, I would say, 400 on the original Enterprise. Right. So you're talking about a space station that has an actual and, – and most of those people would be, would be crew of the space station, if not all of yeah. them. So – I mean, aside from people like Quark and Garrick and, you know, shop owners and things, but they work on the space station as well, even though they're not station personnel. But Chief O'Brien is having to be the chief of operations of Deep Space Nine, working with an an engineering crew that is probably pretty small. And it seems to me that a space station would be a lot more time-consuming to keep in good working condition than a space station. And let, so and, he's, and let's he's working make, with limited resources. Let's also make the point that, again, this isn't Federation technology. This is Cardassian technology, too. So, you know, there's a degree of unfamiliarity with all of this, too. You know, yeah. It's adding to the frustration, you know. If this had been a Fed, you know, again, on the Enterprise, he may not have made that small mistake because, you know, he knew that that well. I mean, that's kind of things you know he's dealing with in this episode so yeah it's you know it's interesting that we're seeing him having real conflicts kind of for the first time you know which as a major character he can be fleshed out like that it doesn't really sure makes you know if he's a lot flatter in tng well that's because he isn't one of the main characters and i think the one time that we saw a lot of him in tng was of course the wounded and that was kind of a different episode because that was really kind of using him as a as a, yeah. a fulcrum for getting into this cardassian thing and for making someone 
uh, a racist, basically, that that wasn't part of the main cast because I don't think the TNG was the type of show to make a member of the main cast racist. No. Uh, so they kind of got away with that. And I think that, that what you're seeing now is they are starting to develop his character a bit more. And I think that he's someone who... Um, he's kind of like, you know, they, there's a lot of talk about O'Brien being the everyman of Deep Space Nine, the everyman of Trek even, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you know, he's not an officer, you know, he's he's just a guy. And so I think that, that that feeds a lot into his sort of psyche and his personality. And he sort of, he's gotten into this position because Starfleet is a meritocracy to some degree, and they recognize his his genius and they recognize his talent, but at the same time, you know, he does feel like he's at the low end of the totem pole because he is at the low end yeah. of the totem pole. I mean, you know, everybody pretty much outranks him. Uh, he doesn't really have a lot of power. And so I think that he's feeling a bit overwhelmed and he's feeling a bit, frankly, he's feeling a bit uh, uh, maybe not emasculated, but but sort of, I think, outside events are kind of outside of his, his control and he's not really able to deal with it i think in an appropriate fashion well, now of course that feeds into what the episode is about but well what i'm finding interest you know th- nobody is really working in concert yet on this uh station i mean nobody you know everybody's basically giving you know has a problem for o'brien to solve and they all think that their problem is the number one problem you know cisco has his replicators and he needs to get that fixed uh you know, Kira needs to get this fixed. And they're all because, you know, I feel like on the Enterprise, they would have known what O'Brien's schedule was and what exactly his duty roster would have been. You know, Picard yeah. wouldn't have been, uh, you know, and there would also be a clearer hierarchy over whose orders you follow first. Again, one of the things that I've been noticing is there is no real clear, you know, there there are several different hierarchies operating on each other within this within this uh, station in a way that they never did in TNG. And, yeah. Um, you know, that's that's that as well as adding to you know, basically everybody is bossing him around because they I don't know, they kind of think he's there to they're not working as a team. It's not a team. It's just everybody's own sphere in a way. Well, and I think a lot of that, ha- you know, factors Which, into, you know, kind of the the idea that that the the space station is still kind of in disrepair. And yeah. People are still, you know, in a sense, we're talking about people that are still on their first month on the job. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. If, you don't I mean, know where things are. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what your coworkers are doing and what their schedule is. Yeah. And I, I really like I like that about this. Again, they they've. One of the things that I they have right off the bat, again, certain characters, Odo and Kira, have a working relationship, have a protocol within each other. But then you have Kira and Cisco, who, again, know they're on the same side, but they have different viewpoints of how it goes. And so they get into conflict, you know, and then you have Odo and Cisco. You know, does Cisco have any power over Odo? You know, Odo, Odo kind of does what he wants, but is that, you know, like you have all of these kind of, I really like that a lot of the conflicts are, based kind of around that and everyone trying to get settled again you know they they haven't had a I, i'm i would assume that at some point soon they start to get some very serious external threats and need to kind of figure figure out things quickly i mean because when we see them dealing with the problem of the week they do figure it out and work together they just haven't cemented that yet 
Yeah, and I think that that I think that's a good point. And I think the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that you know, for example, when you say that that you don't know that Cisco and it can really you know order Odo around to a certain degree, he can, and to a certain degree, he can't. Right? Yeah. I mean, he is the commander of the station, and he can give Odo orders. But I think it's an open question as to whether or not Odo will will follow them. Well, that's the, that's and, the other one. You know, even if you know, yes, yeah, Cisco has jurisdiction over o- Odo. You know, he's not gonna. You know, Odo will still listen to Kira before anybody. Well, I think that, yeah, and you see that in this episode because, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about that scene where, you know, Kira, Odo, and, and Cisco are in ops, and they're pretty much some of the only crew members of the station yeah. that are still unaffected by this virus. And, you know, Kira wants to go take a runabout to, 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 to Bajor to get this doctor, and Cisco's kind of like, I don't know if that's a good idea, and, and Odo basically says, you better let her go. And I think it's interesting how he says that because I don't think that, on TNG, I don't think that a, a subordinate character would talk to Captain Picard like that. And Cisco, but Cisco lets her go. I mean, he doesn't say anything, and it's not a question about about insubordination. It's not a question about tone. It's just this is what Odo thinks should happen, and Cisco is okay with it. So I think you're kind of already seeing that. Yeah, and I think to a degree, Odo also knows that Kira is going no matter what. And, you know, to a degree, you know, him saying, you know, does this go better, let her go is, you know, look, you know, it's going to have the same result. But, it, you know, that this we can't afford a fight right now, you know, and right. this will lead to a fight, you know, um, there, you know, again, just as Odo can sometimes boss around Kira or tells her what she's really thinking, you know, again, the two of them that that does go both ways. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I. It's well, I think not- that, well, you know, I think that the, the interesting thing is really that, you know, and I mean, we're talking a lot around the episode and about the plot. I don't, I mean, I want to be clear. I don't think that this is a great episode. I think it's, no, it's, a, it's okay. But I have I think to say that- these, these two episodes felt like TNG episodes. I don't mean that in a negative way, but it was, you know, a plot with characters around it. Of course, the characterization was a lot stronger here than it would have been in DS9, but this this exact plot could have been TNG, on a, you mean. Y- yes um this exact plot could have been a TNG episode i mean it's it, it was a TNG episode it was. actually that it was, was it was yeah it was floating around for they said about 5 years this idea and they just okay. i don't know they couldn't get it to work for whatever reason and they, they yeah, yeah, transferred yeah. it to Deep space 9 and it worked fine yeah i think it's you know there's plenty of episodes yeah where some mysterious disease or condition affects the crew and they've got to figure it out you know we're just seeing you know this is a general star trek formula we're seeing it with a bunch of different characters and it is interesting again seeing a different bunch of characters approach the problem in a way that again would be different from how uh you know the tng crew would well, have approached it. yeah well i can i can see why they couldn't make this plot work for tng because this plot if it's not the, the 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 fourth or fifth episode of a new TV show where we don't really know the characters, we don't know a lot of their dynamics yet, and we don't know how the, whether or not they're even going to work together well. Uh, if this had come in the third or fourth or fifth season of TNG, I don't know where the drama would be here aside from the medical mystery. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's not enough to hang the episode on. Frankly, the mystery of the episode and the plot of the episode about this aphasia virus is not interesting enough to... Uh, justify making an episode about it. And so what what you really get is if this was a TNG episode, you know, the 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 the, the virus in this episode, you know, it causes aphasia. So very uh, uh uh not even not even subtextually. I mean, this is very textual that 
they can't communicate with each yeah. other. Once you get this virus, nobody can understand what anybody is saying. They can't write anything down. You know, communication is entirely broken down. And so they have and to, they have to one, rely on each other. Never one imagine this plot with Troy on the bridge. Yeah, would that's very been, true. Would have been a lot different, frankly. Well, it would have been. And I think that's my point is that there's no way to make this episode interesting on TNG because we already knew that those characters work together really well. Yeah. And even though they didn't understand each other, they knew how the other crew members thought. They knew how they worked. And they would have figured it out very quickly. And that's why this episode works, I think, on Deep Space Nine, even though it's not a great episode, is that it really hangs on the strength of the characterization that's already been established and shows us that these characters can work together even when they can't understand each other. I think that this isn't a great episode, but I think it's an important step forward for the show. You know, this is like, and I don't remember which the episode was, but it was one of the first TNG episodes where, do you remember when Data has to like really quickly fix the computer and they all have to like do something and then it's like the kind of the first time we see every single TNG crew member doing something together. I think it's the Naked Now, actually. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting that, you know, this is this is DS9's Naked Now episode. But yeah. In a um, sense, yeah. I think know, that's actually a really good way to look <laughs> at it. Um, particularly because it, you know, kind of takes away the baseline of who these characters are now. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, this is, you know, and I like that... I guess what I – you know, I, I liked the plot of it fine. There are some nice mo- – you know, it's a creepy thing when you have, you know, people just babbling. You know, the, there are some nice visuals with um, – when he's looking at the comp- – Bashir's looking at the computer and he sees the text change. Like, those are nice moments, you know, yeah. with it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's – the plot is – I it's not completely incidental, you know, but – and it does have some larger, you know, I, I – I, I like the irony of this being a Bajoran device, you know, designed to, you know, attack Cardassians, you know, that kind of backfires and hits the wrong people. And I like I like how that further kind of grazed the Bajorans, you know, because we've seen um, what was the group from the last week's episode? Oh, the the Kan the Ma or something like that. Yeah. You know, we see the Kan Ma that's they're they're not really good guys. And, you know, here is. Another group of Bajorans who are not really good guys, you know. It's it's interesting to again they don't make Bajor seem like this completely a put upon, you know. It, it, yes, it was a it was a planet that was, you know, completely dominated and occupied by the Cardassians, and that went through some horrible things. And yet, I think they've made it clear from almost the first episode that they've done some horrible things in order to repel the Cardassians. I don't know. I like that greatness in this. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I think that's actually, yeah, I think you're right. And I think that, that, that one of the things that makes the episode work is the fact that it is a Bajoran device that causes this. Yeah. And it is a Bajoran device that, that is basically, um, they forgot about. I mean, it's it's one of those off-putting things about it where yeah. you say, well, things were so chaotic and things were so dangerous. And, and that that the that the, the Bajoran resistance sort of was, was creating these devices of, of, of mass terror and sort of, yeah. I mean, let's be frank. I mean, they wanted to kill every single Kardashian. Basically, every single living person on the station would have been killed. I mean, that, yeah, you know, in a and, very and, terrifying and fucked up way. Well, and I think that there's something to to, uh, to to pick up on here is that I think this is the first time where they mentioned that this was a Bajor, this was a Cardassian mining station. Okay, I don't even know if you if you noticed. Yeah, that. I caught that they said mining. They didn't really. I I don't know if they had made it clear or not, but that makes a lot more sense. And frankly, 
again, given that we were told in the first episode that the that the Cardassians stripped mine the entire planet, you know, that makes this a, an even more fucked up location to set up a base from. Well, yeah, and I also think that what what you really see is that the 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 Bajorans were sort of like, well, you know, collateral damage is fine. I mean, there were probably Bajorans living on the station. There were probably you know mm. there were Cardassians living on the station, and I think that they were just okay with killing them. Uh, and so. Kira, I think, is it, maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of transition into talking about Kira because I think that the thing that really is revealed about Kira in this episode, or maybe we already knew it, but maybe this is really just bringing the point home, is that she is not someone that is able to transition into a command structure. She's not someone who's okay with just doing things because people tell them to do, tell her to do them, and she's not okay with following orders, and she's not okay with not taking initiative. I mean, she is going to go fly off and kidnap someone and yeah. and basically infect them with a deadly disease so that they can get a cure. That's not something that would happen on TNG. Yeah. And, you know, let's be clear, someone who was only tangentially involved with this virus to begin with. Yeah. She, but I think that what you're seeing here is, is yeah. the character of Kira is very, very willing. And this has been built up, I think, throughout her time in the Resistance. That yeah. she understands that things need to get done. It doesn't matter how they get done. Kira is someone who believes that the ends justify the means. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know that, you know, Star Trek is all about the ends not justifying the means. And here we have a main character in the show who's second in command of our space station who believes that the ends justify the means. This is And who in this particular case turns out, let's face it, turns out to be right. Because the only reason they solve this is because she kidnaps this guy and essentially forces him at gunpoint to solve it. Well, and I think that that's, I think that raises an interesting question though, is, is sort of like, you know, and we'll see this in captive pursuit, but, but the Federation and Starfleet is all about the, the ends, not justifying the means. Starfleet is very much about, we need to make sure that our hands are, 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 are not tied here. We are not going to take any actions that we think are inappropriate. And people may die because of that. But at the end of the day, morality has been served. And Kira is basically calling bullshit on all of that. And she's basically saying, Morality is not served by that. If you do something kind of wrong in the pursuit of a greater moral good, that is okay. And I think that that's a profound shift for the series or, or for the franchise. I mean, I'm thinking about the episode with Worf's brother and those uh, the people and because it's the holodeck illusion and all of that. I mean, that episode was, again, a secondary character that we see once looking at the Prime Directive and saying, this is a way of absolving yourself from responsibility that is on you. Like, when you have the opportunity yeah. to save people, you take it. And if you, you know, don't, you know, for Worf's brother, for Nikolai, right? Uh, he believes yeah. that, you know, the Prime Directive is a screen that, you know, people can use, that isolationism is is morally wrong. And here we have... Here we have a major character who is kind of in, you know, saying that, well, this is not right. You know, laws are there to protect people. Her her ultimate goal is peace and, you know, everybody getting out okay and, you know, self-sufficiency and all those things. And for her, if she has to, again, if she has to kidnap and threaten somebody's life in order to get that, in order to save her station, she's going to do that, you know. And which is interesting because... That's the kind of thinking that created this uh, virus bomb in the first place. You know? Yeah. It doesn't really, you know, we, we want the Cardassians out and it doesn't really matter what we do. If we can cripple this mining station, we're going to make a major blow for, you know, Bajoran independence. 
And frankly, I think that that it really does set up the idea that I don't know that the Bajorans would really care necessarily. I mean, they would they would be upset, of course, if everybody on Deep Space Nine yeah. died. But I don't know that they would really think that was uh, in in the scope of things the worst thing in the world. Because I mean, do they? What are their? Do they have any contingency plans or like? I mean, obviously, you know, Deep Space Nine is not the only possible Federation presence. You know, if Deep Space Nine, you know, blows up. The Federation is going to send some more people in in a different way. Well, sure. I, I mean, I think that they're going to, you know, set up a convoy or they're going to set up ships yeah. that are going to orbit the planet or they're going to do something. You know, I, you know, I'm not really sure uh, uh, what they would really do, but I think that that yeah, that, yeah, I get the sense it's kind of too early for them to figure that out. You know, in a way, they're kind of setting them up on DS9 to be the first kind of they they're recon in a lot of ways they got to figure out what the planet needs and all of that and make their they're kind of the preliminary reports i get the sense yeah but i think it's interesting because you know w- what you said is really true that 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 the Bajoran sort of i don't know that you know kira is sort of setting this up and saying well i'm going to take actions that at the same time cause the actions that are taking place in this episode she's yeah. basically saying well i'm just going to do whatever i have to do to make sure that this f- gets fixed it's it's a very uh you know it's 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 firefighting basically it's sort of like you know we're just going to put out the fires as they happen and we're not really going to worry about the fact that um you know we're keeping gunpowder in the kitchen or whatever and so you know it's one of those things where you look at it and you say, is this cognitive dissonance that Kira is having right now, is that going to be maintained throughout the series? Because she is someone who, in the Bajoran resistance, again, the ends justified the means, mm-hmm. here is a, a device that was exactly built and constructed and conceived on that very idea and on that very belief. And now she has to do something dramatic and and frankly illegal to fix this problem, you know, is this going to be maintained in her brain for the rest of her life? I, you know, I don't know. And what, I guess one of the things that I like about that, though, because, again, this is a very smeared and gray, and I knew that coming into the series. This was a much more gray, you know, thing. But this is an episode where she could be, you know, again, she saved the day, but there is also room in the show for her to be dead wrong. Yeah. And this is also – but there's also ways for them to – because – we can't ever show Picard being dead wrong at the epi- end of an episode. You know, he needs to learn his lesson because, you know, the show cannot – because it's episodic. Because, you know, for TNG, for the most part, you can watch one, every episode has to be self-contained. Um, if he if he comes away, you know, having done the wrong thing and having not learned his lesson, you know, that's that's incomplete. But she cannot learn her lesson yet and have to have that tested in season two or three even. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, as it's as as we said, they they kind of put these things, you know, out there and you know, here we are learning about you know, they've done the initial world building in the first few episodes. I do like that this episode just kind of relaxes and let's just again, it's a TNG plot with a different set of characters, but these are very good ways of seeing these characters and you know, showing us these major conflicts in these characters' lives or the way that their psyche goes you know you have you know o'brien is dealing with the fact that he he's suddenly in in a position of responsibility doesn't deal with juggling you know a lot of frustrations well you know kira may do the wrong actions in order to get the right thing you know is she going to be i i mean this is just one guy and it all turns out right in the end and there is a small degree of him you know reaping what he's sown but 
would she make a similar decision if innocence would be in trouble, you know, if, yeah. it meant, if it meant peace? We don't know that yet, and but I think it's really interesting that they've built that question in. There's a lot that we haven't even talked about in this episode. Um, Odo and Quark, I am, I love their relationship. Um, I love their, they ha- again, they they don't have a friendship, but. I mean that one. Well, they respect each other. I well, think that that's that, really what it comes down to. Is you that know, something they, they know who they are? They have, um, again, I, I think they have like uh, brothers who hate each other kind of relationship. But yeah. I love that scene at the beginning when there's the guy complaining about the stew and like Odo, you know, you know, you know, leave Quark alone. I'm the one who talks to him like that. Almost, right. You know? Right. And, you know, again, at the end when, you know, Quark comes in and helps save the day, you know, and the, you know, the two of them are genuinely, you know, he's genuinely worried about Odo when he thinks that, you know, he might not have gotten, you know, they're okay. And, you know, I I like that. Again, they have a, they respect each other. They don't like each other. They don't trust each other. But because they don't have anything, I don't know, they're, they're, they're. Their opinion of each other couldn't get any lower, so they kind of help each other out a lot, I think. I don't know. I I think they see each other, oddly enough, as kind of equals. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely think that's true, and I think that that one of the things that you see in this episode is that that dynamic is very explicitly sort of solidified. Uh, You know, even to the point where Quark and Odo are the only two people left in ops sort of trying to run the station together. And so that really changes things up. I think that, you know... Quark being responsible for the virus spreading and Odo just kind of being like, well, that's Quark, you know? Yeah, because he also knows that, again, it wasn't like the worst Quark did was sneak into, you know, he he sneaked into his parents' liquor cabinet. That's essentially what Quark did in this episode, you know, that the that the liquor turned out to be poisonous you know was nobody figured out but yeah I, yeah i think that's really true i think that there's a sense that odo's kind of like well quark is going to do illegal things and quark is going to do things that i don't want him to be doing but at the end of the day that's nothing that's that bad and so it is kind of like on that prank level or on that sort of like you know i'm staying out late you know i I've, i took my parents car like that kind of I stuff i mean i think you know his um and he talks about vice in the next episode but his his business is alcohol it's gambling it's women it's right. all these it's all people's vices well, people kind of come to him to get to get screwed out screwed over a little bit if you sure. know what i mean like sure. again you don't go to gambling you know shocked that you might lose money you know you know that the house is is playing against you. You do it for the fun of it. And so, in a way, while Korg is swindling everybody he can see, you can't really feel too bad about that because you know that going into Quark's to a degree. Well, I think and so, but I think that there's It's not one... like he's hurting innocent victims, I guess, is or and nothing he's doing is malicious or cruel, I think. Well, I... I don't know that I agree with that because of one, the, the opening scene of Captain Pursuit. Well, which, we're going to talk about that in a second. But, but <laughs> yeah. I, well, maybe this is, you know, one more thing I want to talk about in Babel before we move on to Captain Pursuit is a very brief thing. Is just that I like the relationship that um, Cisco and Jake are sort of developing. And I yeah. like the fact that Cisco is a very loving father. And I like the fact that uh, being a father is one of the defining characteristics of Cisco. And I think that that's. It's just a. Re- it's I, I like it because it kind of sets up Cisco automatically from the beginning as a very different 
commanding officer than Picard. Well, and, especially yeah, especially because we were told the entire time of the one of the major themes of TNG was that to do this, you need to give up a lot, and for TNG, that was family, you know, right. And, the characters all had very had difficulties with their, you know, that was the entire point of Alexander, as awful as that was. And yet, <laughs> you know, that doesn't seem to be any of Cisco's angst there. He's ready to, if he ever has to make a choice between Starfleet and his son, he's going to resign right then and there. Yeah, absolutely. There's and no I, question about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. And I think that it's one of those things where it's like, well, it is possible to have it all. I can't have a son and I can't have a career, you know. And I think that that was kind of, you're right, I think that was the the default assumption of the next generation was that, yes, you can bring your family on board and you can, you know, have kids and everything, but you're never going to be captain. Yeah. Uh, and, and this show is very much turning that on, on its head. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on to Captive Pursuit then. I think that this is the first great episode of Deep Space Nine. Really? Okay. I think that it's the first episode that really marks it as very different from The Next Generation. I know we talked a little bit in Babel about how the actions of Kira uh, uh, kind of put her in uh, opposition to Starfleet and opposition to the Federation. But in Captive Pursuit, we actually have a Starfleet officer that is making the explicit decision to break Starfleet rules. And I don't think that that's something that The Next Generation would have ever done. No, or at least... Yeah, or at least wouldn't have done it for this. I mean, you can see someone breaking revolution re- regulations if the planet's going to explode or something like that. You know, we saw. No, I uh, disagree with you. I I think that that in the next generation we were faced with those very possibilities, and they were all very hands off. I mean, you mentioned the episode with Worf's brother. I think that's yeah. the perfect example. Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess one of the one of the things of. I guess that was yeah yeah I wonder because the scene when O'Brien is talking to uh, Quark and you say you know they're playing this game with these rules and you know Quark's about to say something and then he goes you know well no we have to change the rules you know within TNG it was about figuring out the most creative interpretation of the rules doing yep. some doing moves which were entirely legal. But which, you know, TNG was more about loopholes. This is about breaking the rules outright, you know. TNG was really about using the letter of the law to uphold the spirit of the law. And then Deep Space Nine is really about using the spirit of the law to break the law. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that I don't know that I necessarily agree or disagree with O'Brien's actions in this episode. But what I think is interesting about it is that it's not just O'Brien that's doing this. I mean, he has made, I mean, let's be clear. He's making a very explicit decision to let Tosk escape and to violate the prime directive to violate Starfleet regulations by taking off his comm badge and hiding from Cisco. But at the same time, Cisco is, is very mildly doing the same thing. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't think that that's something that, that even if, even if we had had a main character in the next generation do something like this, I and you could argue that we kind of have, but I, I really don't think so. Um, I think that there would be no way on earth that Picard would ever be involved in it in any fashion. Well, particularly considering that you know these three people who are hunting uh, Toss get killed. I mean, again, culturally, yeah. you know, the assumption is that they're going to be okay with this, and I I think the episode kind of agrees that they're you know. They're not going to send people, you know, looking as vendettas to, you know, get. No, they, this was part of the toss hunt. It was a 
you know, it was a risk they expected. You know, yeah. they could have gotten killed at any time. Um, but, you know, yeah, again, particularly considering that, you know, Picard would have been horrified at what this meant for relations, you know, going forward. Uh, Cisco doesn't seem to care. Cisco does a very hands-off thing again. You know, Odo's about to go, and he said, "Let's just, let's just let, let's let this play out. Let's see how this goes." You know, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, and it's because they do under, you know, I, I would say, you know, what Cisco and Odo, you know, by extension, do is a passive, you know, ignoring of the rules, whereas you know, O'Brien completely breaks them. I mean, what he does is much more active than. You know, Cisco does, of course. Well, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think so, and I think that that you know what's really interesting about Captive Captive Pursuit as an episode is that O'Brien is the character. I think that it it, it makes sense that O'Brien is the person to do this in a certain way because, again, we talked a lot about Babel and we talked about Chief O'Brien a few minutes ago. You know, about his characterization. You know, he's kind of like the everyman of the of the space station. Uh, you know, we know him from the next generation. And so it's it works on a couple of levels. It works because we already know the character and it's more shocking that he's doing something like this than it would be for a character that we've only seen for four or five episodes like Bashir or Dax. It would not be shocking if Kira did something like this. She did something like this yeah. in Babel. Uh, it wouldn't really be shocking if Quark or Odo did something like this. It has to be a Starfleet officer for this to be shocking, and it has to be someone that we already know. And, and so, that, and frankly, the fact that he has a family and a kid, and again, him, yeah. him dealing with repercussions is not just going to deal with, you know, if Kira gets killed on that, that's Kira, you know. But if if O'Brien gets killed on it, then uh, uh, Keiko and what's the daughter's name have a problem? Uh, Molly. Molly. Yeah. Aww. Molly yeah. Molly does not get killed, by the way. Uh, Aw. <laughs> wow, Richard. Okay. <laughs> that's pretty harsh. Um, yeah, I, I think so. And I think that, that you know, that's a good point that O'Brien is the character that has the most to lose in a certain sense. Yeah. Uh, I think that Cisco's dressing down of him at the end of the episode is sort of perfunctory in a way because I don't think that Cisco. I don't know that I don't really know that Cisco cares all that much. I think that Cisco needs to dress down O'Brien. I think that Cisco needs to uphold Starfleet rules and regulations. I don't know that that Cisco is okay with O'Brien actively disobeying him. And and frankly, I think that Cisco is most annoyed or most upset by the fact that O'Brien ignored him. Well, I mean, let's put it this way: this is as we said, um, this is kind of everyone's been there a month, two months, maybe. You know, this is everyone's still new. I mean, one of let's face it, one of the very first things O'Brien has done in his career at DS9 has been completely disobey his and ignore his commanding officer's orders. I mean, uh, that's and that's probably the first real active because this story is going to all the 300 people on the space station are going to know the story by the end of the day um, because it was a hell of a thing. Um, Well, you had, you know, Doctor Who characters beaming down to the station. (laughs) Let me tell you, those costumes were not very good. No, they weren't. They they very much. I mean, I'm completely serious when I say that they were Doctor Who costumes. I mean, they just look ridiculous. No, I don't know if they were, but I'm just saying, like, they just look like the kind of thing that Doctor Who does. I'm not. Yeah, and I mean, the rest of the costumes on the show have been fine so far. Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking um, about. Maybe they were thinking, well, they need to look very different because they're from the Gamma Quadrant, and I I don't know. But, 
But I think Maybe. that you know, but it's also interesting in a certain sense because you know, I I I want to go back to to Chief O'Brien, but I think that uh, one of the interesting things that the episode does that I don't think is is very obvious is is the fact that these are the first aliens that are coming through the wormhole yeah. and well, they're they're assholes and and they're kind of dangerous. And so I think that there was a lot of assumption. I mean, Kira talks in in past prologue from last week about how the wormhole is an unmitigated good for Bejor and it's going to bring yeah. commerce and it's going to bring ships and it's going to bring money uh uh to Bejor. And the first time that we actually see and of course in this episode it's revealed that they are sending sort of like, you know, scout ships well, or whatever that's... through the wormhole. But so... the first time that 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 ships come from the gamma quadrant into the alpha quadrant Frankly, they're a bunch of dangerous assholes. And so yeah. I think that it's setting up the show for kind of being a different thing because you're thinking, oh, it's this grand adventure and we're going to go out and we're going to explore new life and new civilizations. Well, that's and, the thing. And new life and new is, civilizations is new threats each time. Well, right. Exactly. And I think that, that you know, I'm not sure that I, – I don't know to what degree we're supposed to read this as cynical. What, I mean, I don't well, know. Well, I what, just think – so. I guess my question has been, so this wormhole, again, this is explicitly only a couple of months after the wormhole was open. So Federation sent a, sent a couple ships out there, and no one's come back yet is the assumption. They're just still out there looking for stuff, charting, you know. They have a bunch of enterprises that they've deployed, but haven't really come up with anything yet. I mean, I assume. I, I don't really know. Uh, I don't know that they really ever thought that out, frankly. I think that that, you know... Whatever is happening is whatever is happening. I think that the implication that they're yeah. sending ships through, it could be Bajor. It's probably a couple of Federation starships out there exploring the Gamma Quadrant on a mission. But, you know, and I think that that in a certain sense, uh, uh, I mean, it's kind of weird because if you think about it, you could kind of see a different version of this show, which is not about Deep Space Nine, but is, again, about a starship going through the Gamma Quadrant on this five-year yeah. mission or something, and they're just not going to come back. And so, the, you know... Which is kind of what Voyager is. In I was going to say, isn't that kind of the concept of Voyager? Though? A little bit, yeah. But I think that that what's interesting about this is that it's kind of turning turning the concept of Star Trek on its head again, in the same way that that Babel did, where it's saying, "Yeah, new life and new civilizations is great, and you want to go out and you want to meet new civilizations and new life, and you want to meet them and understand them and all these things." Um, but they've always been very much on Starfleet's terms. I think that, and now what we're seeing, I think, in, in Deep Space Nine is kind of a, 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 an understanding that these alien species have their own uh, uh, desires, they have their own sort of uh, politics, they have their own belief systems, they have all of these things. They might not care. You know, like, frankly, and, and frankly, these might not be aliens that you even want to know. And well, so... I mean, that, yeah, that was the, I mean, remember Encounter at Farpoint, that was just... That was the settled area of the galaxy still. It was the fringe of it, but that was still areas we, we had explored already. And Q was saying, you're going to find stuff you've never – this is the other end of the galaxy now. I mean, if, you, if, if going that far yeah. was going to show you some weird shit, imagine what you're going to find there. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that, that you know, for whatever encounter at Farpoint said, I mean, they sort of retconned that in a large degree because that was sort of just thrown out the window. But, yeah. you know, the, the idea that the Enterprise was going to be on the edge of unknown space. And I mean, either way, was, metaphorically, it still, it still works, yeah. But I think, and, yeah, but I think that the, the fact of the matter is, you know, we're already being set up, you know, we're, we're only six episodes into this show, or five episodes into the show, I guess, and we're already starting to see that it's going to be a very different show, and it's going to be... 
I don't know. Again, I keep going back to this question of whether or not it's cynical. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, do you think that this is still upholding the values of Star, Star Trek as we've seen them? I mean, you know enough about Star Trek at this point to know that this is a different kind of show. And this is a very different kind of episode. I mean, we've seen plenty of episodes in all of the Star Treks that we've seen where, you know, we have a culture. That, you know, the episode where where uh, 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 Loxana Troy meets the guy who's in the, in the Logan's Run planet. Sure. Um, I mean, that episode ended with them saying, you know, we don't understand this custom, but it is their custom. And we have to respect that. And you know, honor that. And we've, you know, that has been the ending of several episodes of, of the series, you know, that again, we don't understand this, but you know, it's not really our business to understand it or not. This is something to a degree, this, the task hunt is something that all parties involved have agreed to do. Um, well, I mean, you know, I don't know that I would agree with that. Well, yeah, well, well, that's, that's why the, that that's why the episode is kind of a little more effective because if you when if you ask Toss when they do ask Toss he basically says yeah I'm on the greatest adventure you know this is what I do I want to be hunted I would rather be shot down as as you know and taken as a trophy than you know be captured alive like to him you know and you can talk about well you were bred to do this you know and you know you've been socialized to be this and all of that is definitely true. And we in the Alpha Quadrant agree that each, you know, in the Federation agree that each, you know, each life form has the right to enjoy that life. But can you convince him that he doesn't really want to do this and that he wants to really become a Federation citizen? Well, no, I, I don't yeah. think you can. And I think that the, and, the they throw that question out there very quickly and it's answered yeah. very quickly because he doesn't want asylum. He doesn't want that. Right. So. But but the character of Tosk is interesting because it, it, the show never really answers the question about whether or not he has any choice in this matter. And I think that that's the, the smart thing to do because I think it yeah. makes it much more of a morally ambiguous – you know, it makes O'Brien's actions much more morally ambiguous, frankly. And, I mean there's a degree to which he doesn't have a choice, but he's kind of running with it. You know, I mean that that, that – Well – yeah, but, you know, but but he doesn't have a choice but to run with it. I do agree with that. But I think the other thing that that makes it an interesting choice on O'Brien's part is that Tosk is a is a interesting character. I like. Oh, yeah. Him, you know, and O'Brien likes him, too. And I think that that's kind of where it comes from. And I think that's why it's probably not cynical, because O'Brien's actions in this episode really come from a place of respect and come from a place of yeah. of, of love. Frankly, I think that he really likes Tosk. I think that he has some sort of rapport with him, understands him to some degree as much as he can. And I think Tosk feels the same way about O'Brien, yeah, maybe in a it, different way. But but And so I think that O'Brien's actions are really about helping a friend. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's made very, you know, it's... it's. I, I would say that as dark as the show is has gotten and as dark as the show is frankly going to get, because it's obvious that this is just season one, it is still very much Star Trek because at the core of this episode is two beings from completely different uh, worlds who have completely different lifestyles and who can't even quite communicate with each other exactly, learning to love and respect each other and, you know, bonding together. I mean, this is uh, Dharma Tanaka to a degree. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, that you know, 
And well, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, I don't think it's cynical because, again, even the hunters, they're not, you know, while they have, you know, they're not and they're not hostile or antagonistic towards the, you know, towards the people on the ship once they, you know, realize what exactly is going on, you know. Um, Wait, what? Ta- they're not? They, they, they think that, they, yeah, they're guarding the, they think it's all part of the game. I mean, frankly, it's no... I would say there's no more malice uh, directed towards the crew of DS9 uh, than there would be towards, you know, another team in a sporting event. I mean, once once they capture him, you know, they're they're all fine and respectful. And, you know, they, you know, while I think the show thinks we're not going to, you know, will declare this quadrant out of bounds is too little too late. Um, you know, I, I think it does demonstrate from the aliens' view that, you know, we don't really want to bother with your stuff. Like, we didn't mean to do that, you know, and we're just, you know, we'll we'll stay on our side and you'll stay on there, on yours, you know? I um, mean, I guess to a certain degree, sure, but I think that... They, that you know, their, tar- their target their... is tossed. They don't really care about anything else. They well, yeah, but see... there is an arrogance to them, and there is sort oh, yeah. of a... a because they they beam onto Deep Space Nine and they're blowing shit up and they're shooting at people that they don't really know and and if they really just wanted Tosk they could just beam him off the, the 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 space station do you know what I mean like there is a certain degree to which I don't buy that because... I don't think they could beam him off the space station because he is in a prison cell at that point and if you know I would think that DS Nine security would be a little more robust than that. I mean, maybe, but at the same time, they're able to collapse Deep Space Nine shields in about 10 seconds. So yeah, are fair. you really telling me that they couldn't get Tosk out if they wanted to? Yeah, but that's also less fun, you know? And I mean, they they also maybe not, you know, I, maybe I'm making explanations after the fact, but, um, you know, you know, there was also, I mean, there is also a line that the alien says to the effect of, you know, oh, you don't have anything like this on your world? I mean, maybe they thought that Maybe he thought that they knew what was going on and that they were actively protecting him. You know, he does say, you know, you didn't break your... He's surprised that Tosk didn't break this vow of silence, you know, and yet he still got people to help him. Yeah, but I think to a certain degree, I think that the, the alien hunters in this episode uh, uh, don't don't care, frankly. And I think that they have oh. a lack of respect and they have a, they, uh, for the crew of the of the Space Nine. And they have a lack of respect for anybody that they talk to. I think that... Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I'm differentiating that from, again somebody who is actively planning malice towards DS9. DS9 is below their regard, really. It's but isn't just that the... almost worse, though? I mean, it, that's just so arrogant on their part. Yeah, it is, but they also... I don't know. You can't blame them for wanting to be isolationist. Uh, yeah, but I mean, they're not, though. I mean, <laughs> like, if they were really isolationist, they, they wouldn't have bothered Deep Space Nine in the first place. I mean... No, because they were following Tosk. I don't know. They're going to follow Tosk into a wormhole, and they're going to start shooting up a space station. They have no idea what it is. They have no idea who these people are. There's I just... didn't say they're good. I didn't say they're good characters. I just meant, again, they're not looking to take over. They're not... They don't have any designs on DS9. Compare them to a Cardassian. Their motives are very clear. I guess. I, I don't know. I, I think... To a certain degree, I don't know that this is really interesting to talk about anymore, but... Yeah, I just I don't I don't really buy your explanation that they're just sort of like out there doing stuff to do it and they're just sort of like, oh, we're just playing a game of baseball. It's like they are shooting up the space station. I mean, shooting people. They are committing acts of violence against people. They have no idea who they are. I mean, 
they are not just rational actors that are just playing a game here. All right, let, let, let's put this at, you know, let's let's say they're the equivalent of people who will go to, you know, the, the savannah and poach some elephants, but, you know, they're going to be very nice and polite to you and buy you dinner. You know, that, that's Except kind that of, they're fighting, they're, they're, they're hunting the lion in Nairobi. Like yeah. they're not they're not hunt, hunting the lion out in the in the in the jungle or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're assholes. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Oh, I, I think the show definitely agrees they're assholes. Yeah. Uh but let's talk about um the beginning of the episode. Okay. So the Netflix description of this episode and the Netflix descriptions are terrible, by the way. Um I like the fact that they're terrible. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't tell you anything. Like, um but it said, like, you know, Cisco is listening to a complaint on Quark's lascivious behavior. I think that that uh, uh, what the Netflix Netflix descriptions really seem like is someone sat down and watched the first two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so I'm thinking lascivious behavior. All right, Quark is kind of sleazy, and there are, you know, probably women in different outfits out his bar. He said something to someone. And then we learn that he is has in the barmaid's contract that he gets to have sex with her. That's how I read it. That uh, was yeah. right. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's a it's it's a it's a sex slave contract in a sense. And this is never brought up again in the episode, and the rest of the characterization of Quark in the episode is just ah, oh, that Quark. Yeah. I don't think that this uh, again, ever so often you watch an episode of the show and realize that this is 20 years old. Um, I feel like they did not intend for that joke. I did. I feel like they intended that for that to read as a joke and it completely went south. Oh, I disagree with you. I don't think it was intended to read as a joke at all. I think that they take it very seriously. And I, I, you know, and I, I, I think that you're trying to rationalize it because I think that you like the show and I think that you like the people that create it. Uh, I think to be frank, they just dropped the ball on this. I mean, yeah. they set up an idea that's frankly just just so odious as to be unforgivable. That's I guess that's and, I guess what I mean. Yeah. And they just drop it and they never really bring it up again. So in this episode at least. And so I think that that yeah, I, I, I don't it was a mistake to do that, frankly. Hmm. I don't think that it's it was a good idea to to paint Quark as as that much of an asshole, as that much of a criminal actor. I mean, I guess I want to put that I can see him at this point of the show slapping a waitress on the ass and getting in trouble for that, and that being something that he should not do at all, but something that he can also come back from. You know, in other words, it's yes. a, it's sexual harassment, but it's not putting fucking her into the contract like that's that crosses a line that you can't really cross back from yes i would agree with you totally and i think that it raises fundamental questions about quark that that the the episode never really answers or even brings up again i mean don't i think they like vaguely try to explain it as well that's a ferengi custom or something like that but sure that even makes again that 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 makes the Ferengi even worse. Again, you know, it, it's and I, I again, I love the fact that lascivious was used to describe it because that is such a euphemism for what exactly the scene is about. Well, yeah, but that's the Netflix description. I mean, I don't know no, that I, I know, really want to but... go down the road of like psychoanalyzing the Netflix descriptions. But I, no, that's not I, that's not how I meant it. It's just I guess I was again, I was prepared for some mild, you know, crude remarks from him. 
And that would have been in the character that we've seen him in. You know, again, because at the end of the day, the show likes Quark. The characters, in spite of themselves, like Quark, or at least keep him around. And, you know, he's supposed... Again, he's that character that everyone loves to hate. You know, he is very much a TV type of character. But, yeah, that they... they that well, one... and I think I I I think that that there maybe they were trying to set up some sort of parallelism with with you know the the idea that that Quark okay. is is taking the agency away from the Dabo girls in the same way that the hunters are taking the agency away from Tosk or something. I don't know. Yeah, but the but, but the it's... woman is complaining about it. Like it would be one thing. Well, if... and it's very it's very under underdeveloped and it's very half baked, and you yeah. sort of wonder why they thought this was a good idea at all. Again, it would be one thing if you had Kira coming into Cisco and saying, you know, I really don't like, you know, there are these women at Quark's and, you know, I think he has this thing in their contract and they don't really, you know, sure. seem, you know, that would be one thing and a more direct parallel to the episode. But that's not the thing. You have this woman who is directly and rightfully, frankly, complaining about this clause. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I think that, that I don't know. You know, that it, yeah, it doesn't parallel with Tosk, who is very again almost proud of what he's where he is well that's why i say it's half developed and underbaked yeah. i mean they're just you know there's yeah, no way so around like a, it i i really think from the way that the rest of the episode goes that they again maybe intended for this to read as a funny thing you know again when she says like i'll wear the costume you know that's a moderately amusing line and again if they had constant you know if they if they had just said, oh, I was I was there to be the manager, and now suddenly I'm wearing a showgirl's outfit, you know what the fuck? Like that, they could have done that in a comedic way, and it would have hit that tone of everything a little nicer. And I think that's kind of where they wanted to go with it, but they just totally failed at it. Maybe I, I don't know. I mean, I you know, if they meant it to be funny, the director didn't get the note, and the actors didn't yeah. get the note. You know, yeah. like and and, yeah. and 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 I don't think that there's any way that that could have been funny. So no, no, yeah. no. Well, and I think with the, I think this raises an interesting question. I think, and maybe before we wrap the episode up, is that uh, uh, Deep Space Nine doesn't really have B plots so far. Um, no, they they do a very good job of having all of. I mean, the the closest we had was Keiko opening the school, but even that was connected to you know, and that like, was in an episode where there was no real A plot. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, like to a certain degree, the A plot was the B plot. I mean, there was that was really a hangout episode, and that was really just a, a collection of stuff that happened. There was no real plot in that episode. There was no driving force. I, I think that what we're seeing so far is, you know, in Babel and in Captive Pursuit, uh, there really is there there is no B plot. I mean, they're just they're very focused on the main plot, and I, I think to its credit. It's a bit more of a sophisticated show than TNG because yeah. they're able to weave in all the characters into the main plot without it having seemed tacked on. Now, I don't know if that has to do with just the, the, the environment that the show is in. I mean, maybe it's more natural that all the characters are going to be involved in this because so far uh, uh, it's been this sort of space station wide event. I don't know. Yeah, again, the, the scene where you have... Um... You know, when Bashir's trying to figure out the cloning in that episode and, you know, it's just kind of showing, like, everyone on the promenade. Like, yeah, they do – the style of storytelling seems to be, rather than telling a few different stories, you have a story that ha – I think they're more interested in looking at events more deeply than TNG did. In other words, yeah. um, 
you know, you, you have one or, you know, a couple of characters dealing with a problem and you get all their takes on it and that's fine. Here we have a bunch of different people, all of whom have very different worldviews, and you get their views on the main plot, and you get each of them doing a very different action onto the main plot, um, having a very different functional relationship to it, too. And, yeah, so you have, you know, rather than, you know, here's the adventures of O'Brien and uh, Tosk, and then meanwhile we're going to show you what Keiko's doing in school, and they have a ridiculous, you know, um, it feels a lot tighter in a way because everything refers back to that main plot yeah and again maybe you know maybe given that the way that the series you know maybe they will bring up you know quirk sex slavery in the next episode oh we were so busy with tosk that we didn't have time to arrest you you know (laughs) (laughs) well maybe i don't know about that but i think that that i think it is interesting that you say that the show is able to be a bit more um, a, a bit more in-depth in its examinations yeah. of the plot, and I think that's the right way to look at it. I think that one of the reasons why this episode, I think, is is so good, and I, you know, and I don't want to say, like, this is, like, the best that the show gets or anything. I mean, this is certainly, like, I think it's the, the first good episode of the show. I think that it's the first episode where the show feels kind of fully formed, in a sense. Uh, I'm not saying that this is sort of, like, the the, the um, model for what a, deep, a good Deep Space Nine episode looks like, and I think the episode does, ha- does have some problems. I just think that in terms of how they handle the plot, how they handle looking at all the various facets of it, yeah. and how they handle the characters and what they're doing, I think that it all works really well together. And frankly, there is something to be said that this is season one, episode five, and not, you know, halfway through season two like TNG was to get to this point. That's very true. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a good way to look at it as well. And I think that's a good way to look at it because next week is going to be a little rough, but before uh, I reveal why... If uh, you have any thoughts about either of the episodes that we just talked about, uh, please go to truckaboutshow.com and leave us a comment. Uh, I usually respond to them. Richard does not because Richard is a bad person. I don't I don't get these comments. I don't know when we get them. Why aren't you looking at truckaboutshow.com every week? Because you usually tell me when we get comments. Okay. Uh, if you would like to tweet at us, you can do so at twitter.com slash truckaboutshow. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash truckaboutshow. And as always, leave us a positive iTunes review by opening iTunes on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device. That would be very much appreciated. Next week, we are continuing our descent into the first season of Deep Space Nine by talking about... Are you ready for this, Richard? I'm ready. Q-less. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. No! I'm really sorry, Richard. It's, no! It's, it's not going to be a good time. No! Uh, I recommend that you indulge Why? in some sort of mind-altering substance before you but watch it. But that's not even a pun! Uh, and, and just be prepared for the fact that uh, it is a Q episode. <laughs> and then we talk about Dax. Okay. I'm sorry, Richard. No! I'm, I'm sorry. No! Dax it's is a good episode, even... though. It'll be fine. I, I, okay. Okay. All right. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>